This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Saturday night in Glasgow. As the pubs and bars were filling up and the city was coming out to play, down by the banks of the Clyde, a gavel was banging. I propose that the revised proposal is adopted uh, as orally amended. A revised version, a written version, will be issued shortly. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. Now that the delegates have left and the dust is settling, after a frantic fortnight of negotiations, what did COP26 actually achieve? The goal of keeping 1.5 degrees of warming alive, which was always the aim of the Glasgow talk, they can just about claim that that has been kept alive. We go behind the scenes to hear about the tears, the tantrums, and how this deal was actually done. And then the Mexicans turn to Archie and say, we'll give you a bottle of tequila if you finish by 6pm on Friday. And the Russians match it with a round of vodka shots. Was the deal they eventually reached any good? And where does it leave the fight against climate change? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, COP26. Success or cop out? Two weeks ago, before the summit began, the Sunday Times science editor Ben Spencer warned us that negotiations at COP26 in Glasgow, like every other UN climate summit, would probably go down to the wire. Lo and behold, come the weekend, they did. We were well into it over time by now. COP was meant to finish at 6pm on the Friday. And late on the Friday night, they were still going and they said, right, we're going to produce a new draft text overnight and we will meet again at 10am to discuss it in the plenary hall. That's the main hall where most of the big discussions took place and the draft was of the final conference agreement. The text came out at 8am on Saturday morning. This was the third draft. And there had been disagreements all week about the inclusion of the phase-out of coal. This was a real sticking point. But Alok Sharma, who was the COP president, had really made this the centre of what he wanted to get out of COP. And he stuck with it, and it was watered down through the week. Modifying language was inserted in, and it was weakened through the drafts, but 
on the Saturday morning, it was still there. And they were meant to meet in the plenary hall at 10am for a final discussion of the text. And this got put back to midday. I went into the hall at about half past 12. And they weren't sitting talking about it. They were in big huddles on the floor. So there was John Kerry, who's the US climate envoy, talking to Xia Zhenhua, who's the Chinese envoy, and the EU was there. There are big huddles of EU ministers as they tried to come to a consensus on what their approach would be. And Alok Sharma was up on the stage trying to get them to sit down so they could get on with it. And they were just ignoring him because they were so disparate. At this point, several hours after they were meant to have finished, they were still very, very far apart. And about three o'clock, they finally sat down and... The Indian Environment Minister, Bhupender Yadav, spoke up and he said that they weren't happy at all with the language on coal. Developing countries have a right to their fair share of the global carbon budget and are entitled to the responsible use of fossil fuels within this scope. In such a situation, how can anyone expect that developing countries can make promises about phasing out coal and fossil fuel subsidies. And this was a very, very clear opposition. And then the Chinese spoke. And there was a big rush to the back of the hall because no one had their uh, translation earphones on. Sorry. <laughs> so there was a stampede to get to the back of the hall. And when everyone got there headphones on they were talking about clause 36 and I was flicking through my text looking for clause 36 and there it was this was about the fossil fuel and coal language again there were objections both ways back and forth back and forth and then Alok Sharma says right friends it is now decision time and the choices that you are set to make are vitally important we're going to produce a final text no one leave your seats. And they produced the final text, and this is about six o'clock by now. For you, having watched how disparate things were before, did it feel like maybe things had finally come together? It did, it did, because what you saw when the final text came through is the Brits hadn't moved. They'd ignored the objections and they'd stuck with it. And Alok Sharma had basically rode it out. But there was one final hurdle, which was the final plenary. And just before the final plenary, the US... India, the EU, and China disappeared into a side room, and Alok Sharma went with them. And the Chinese basically said, we're not signing up to this. We will not accept the language on phasing out coal, and India backed them up. The EU and the US tried to persuade them. The Chinese basically said, this is not in fitting with our five-year plan. We cannot promise to phase out coal, Bizarre five-year plan doesn't have an end date. So they proposed a new language, which was phased down. We just will not back you up on this unless you change the language. And Alok Sharma was pretty devastated. And he was texting the people in the hall from some of the vulnerable countries who he had been visiting all year, those at the very front line of climate change, preparing them for this so that they wouldn't be blindsided. Ah, when the statement finally came out. Yes. And at one point, the two Indian delegates were talking 
between themselves in Hindi, and Alok Sharma, who was born in Agra, replied to them in Hindi. He says, come on, let's get on with this. You know, this is really important. We can't phase it down. But in the end, the US, John Kerry, basically brokered a deal between the Chinese and the Indians that they would accept, fine, we'll go with phase down. But Alok Sharma said, I'm not changing the text. If you want this changed, you've got to explain to the plenary hall exactly why you want it changed. Because otherwise it would look like the Brits had watered it down. Anyway, they came out and the Indians made their request for the language on phase down. The next text we propose and will be read as follow. Accelerating effort to phase down unabated coal power and phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies while providing targeted support to the poorest and the most vulnerable in line with national circumstances. And there was absolute fury in the hall. It was absolutely palpable. And the delegates from Fiji. We'd like to express, of course, our, not just our astonishment, but our immense disappointment uh, in the manner in which this has been introduced. From the Marshall Islands. On behalf of the Marshall Islands, I wish to read into the record our profound disappointment with the change in the language. And basically they said, how has this come to pass that we've been here for two weeks? And what their big thing was, they wanted a new deal on loss and damage. This is the way that vulnerable countries should be funded to deal with the effect of climate change. And Alok Sharma had been flying around the world all year talking to them about this loss and damage package. And in Glasgow, he couldn't get it over the line. So when the Indians and Chinese stitched up this deal in the side room, these countries who were told, no, you can't have your deal, they were furious. And they basically called Alok Sharma out on this in the plenary hall. And that was the point at which Alok Sharma stood up and said, May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. And he paused. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. And you could see he was actually in tears, and it was such a striking moment. Everyone in the hall stood up and gave him a standing ovation at that point. It was very, very emotional. Ben, you've been to a lot of COP summits in the past. Have you ever seen anything like that? Well, COPs are known for drama. It's two weeks of intense negotiations trying to reach consensus among 197 countries. And towards the end, people don't sleep. Alok Sharma said after he'd finished that he'd had six hours sleep in three nights. That's the level we're talking about. There is a tradition of emotion at COPs. Ivo de Boer, who was the UN climate chief in 2007 at the Bali COP, famously had to be led out of the hall because he was in tears. And the British tabloids nicknamed him the Crying Dutchman. Yeb Sano in the Philippines delegate and the Warsaw COP in 2013, his country had just been hit by a big typhoon. The initial assessment showed that Haiyan left a wake of massive destruction that is unprecedented, unthinkable, 
and horrific and the devastation is staggering. I struggle to find words even for the images that we see on the news coverage. He broke down in tears during a speech and went on hunger strike. Wow. And in 2009 in Copenhagen, the Venezuelan delegate Claudia Solano banged her hand on the table so hard and so many times that she was actually bleeding and she held up her bleeding hand as this sign of her absolute fury. But the thing about Alok Sharma is he's nicknamed No Drama Sharma. He's very, very straight. He's not prone to emotion. So to see him in tears was quite something. And he's come out of this very well. He's made a a reputation for himself around the world as an impartial broker. And he'd made a lot of promises. And I think that's why it was so emotional, because he had gained the trust of especially the vulnerable nations, you know, places like Tuvalu and Bangladesh. He had been to all these places throughout the year. And he had seen firsthand the effects of climate change And he had worked very hard to get a deal on coal and a deal on loss and damage. And, you know, after a very, very emotional two weeks, it broke down at the end. It was quite striking to see him break down too. Tell me, how has this agreement been received around the world? Well, it's interesting because the change in the language from phase out to phase down coal... Hmm. It's largely symbolic, if we're honest. It's the first time that that coal's even been mentioned in the UN climate text, and it probably doesn't change much. Environmental activists and developing nations have criticised the UN Climate Summit as a failure, saying the Glasgow Agreement has fallen far short of what's necessary to prevent a climate catastrophe. There were moments of of happiness, moments of progress, moments of frustration. It has some good aspects in it, but it's also really not fulfilling the science. Honestly, I don't think we're going fast enough. It's very difficult to come up with agreements that are binding for everyone. So, you know, today we rest and tomorrow we organise again. In the developing world, countries are just absolutely furious about being let down on loss and damage. This was described by some observers as, you know, a victory for the rich Western world and nothing for the poor countries really on the front line of climate change. And Ben, you've followed every moment of this COP and you've, you know the context well, so you're the best man really to explain it to us. Tell us, in the end, what exactly was agreed? So the real big thing was countries agreeing to come back within 12 months with better pledges for how to cut emissions. The Paris Agreement, signed in 2015, asked countries to come back by 2020. And that was really important because 2030 is really the end date for keeping 1.5 degrees of warming alive. The scientists say the world needs to cut emissions by 45% by 2030. And so that was meant to be the Glasgow Pact. Everyone was going to come in with these emission uh, targets that would cut global warming to uh, what scientists say is a safe level. But then we had the pandemic. The Glasgow conference was put back a year, and countries have got different priorities. You know, there's an economic crisis, there's an energy crisis. And when they added up their pledges, they came to 
2.4 degrees. Ah, not good enough. Not good enough. We know that it's already been delayed a year because of the pandemic. Now, this incredibly urgent deadline has sort of been kicked down the road again for another 12 months. Is that really good news? Well, it is because the main outcome of the Glasgow COP is come back next year and do better. And hopefully we'll be well out of the economic crisis, the COVID recovery will be underway and the energy crisis will be resolved. We've kept alive the hope of restricting the growth in temperatures to 1.5 degrees. We started out saying two years ago we want to keep 1.5 global warming uh, within reach, that limit to 1.5 degrees. We achieved that. And that's why the government can claim to have kept 1.5 alive. Coming up, the remarkable intervention that changed the course of COP26. But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Sunday Times science editor, Ben Spencer, is a COP veteran. He hasn't just covered the big summits like Copenhagen and Paris, he's also covered the ones that get less attention, like Warsaw and Lima. And this time, at COP26 in Glasgow, he noticed that things were being done very differently. Someone said to me that this was really the first modern COP And after 26 of these events, you wonder (laughs) why this has taken so long. Yeah, 
Claire Perry O'Neill, who was meant to be the president of COP, the former climate minister, she decided about three or four years ago that this COP, the Glasgow COP, wouldn't be like the others. Sure, they'd crack on with the core negotiations, but alongside it, they would try and come to agreements that were, were not part of the core process, but took place alongside. And Claire Perry didn't last in the job. Alok Sharma took over two years ago. But Alok Sharma kept hold of this idea for a real-world economy set of agreements, which wouldn't need consensus, would basically be coalitions of the willing to try and drive on real-world deals. There were a series of announcements in the first week of the COP. Well, let's talk some more now about that historic deal agreed at Glasgow to end worldwide deforestation. We're ending the Great Chainsaw Massacre with more than 85% of the world's forests to be protected by the end of this decade, an unprecedented agreement by 122 countries. Critics, the purists, would say, well, it's not backed by UN law. You need the UN process. And who's going to monitor it? Who's going to hold these countries to account? And that's a valid criticism. But at the same time, some real progress was made. Today, 97 countries signed a landmark agreement to reduce methane emissions by 30 percent by 2030. There was an agreement signed by several countries to cut methane, which is a very, very potent greenhouse gas, kind of 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So this was an easy win. And there was an agreement on ending overseas coal financing. China, Japan and South Korea are the biggest backers of foreign fossil fuel projects in the G20. But those countries have committed to stop overseas funding for coal, a pledge made by all G20 nations. This was a big success because China, although it didn't agree to phase out its own coal, did agree to end coal financing overseas. Now, China funds coal-fired power stations across Asia and actually across the world. So for them to say, we won't do that anymore, had actually immediate impacts about three or four days after they announced that. Vietnam said they would stop building coal-fired power stations. Who pays for Vietnamese coal-fired power stations? China. If there's no money coming from China, they can't build them anymore. So we saw immediate impacts. So there's some real, real gains alongside the core UN negotiations in Glasgow. And for you, what were the big surprises? The United States and China are releasing a joint declaration which lays out how we will limit warming on this planet and how together we'll take action here at the COP as well as in the years to come. One of the biggest surprises was the US-China declaration that they were going to work together on climate change. And that came out of the blue. We were all wondering, what's going on here? Because China has not budged. Yet John Kerry's still meeting them, so something's going on. Out of nowhere tonight came an announcement that appeared to catch everyone at the Glasgow summit by surprise. And then they had this very dramatic press conference where Xia Zhenhua came out and said, we've agreed to work together with the US on climate change. In the area of climate change, there is more agreement between China and the US and divergence 
China's the world's biggest emitter. It has about 28% of global emissions. The US is the world's second biggest emitter with 15%. So between them, they're approaching between 40 and 50%, nearly half the world's emissions from these two countries. If they can set aside their differences to work on climate change, that's quite something. And Ben, you described how earlier in the week, you know, even by Tuesday, people were staying up all night negotiating, trying to make things move. What were essentially the big sticking points at this conference? I mean, it comes down to tiny, tiny things. Just the language. There was a big row over this clause that they were going to come back next year. There was a big row over whether the wording should be urges or requests. <laughs> These are the things that, you know, the choice of verb can make or break a deal. I mean, that's surprising. <laughs> It is. And no one could agree which was the strongest. The language was urges, and then it was changed to requests. And some people said, oh, that's weakened it. And some people said, well, that's actually strengthened it. So no one could even agree about, you know, whether this was a watering down or a tightening up, which was very confusing for journalists. But there was all kinds of things. So I'm just um, looking at the actual language. On the coal language, between drafts, there was some watering down language inserted. So at that point, it was the phasing out of coal power. That was changed to phasing out of unabated coal power. There was the phasing out of fossil fuel subsidies. That was changed to the phasing out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Uh. And what is efficient or inefficient, that's down to the reader, really. So it creates loopholes along the way. The UK negotiators were in meetings all through the night from Tuesday night, arguing with countries about this language. Saudi Arabia was saying, can we get rid of the language on fossil fuels? Some of the smaller countries like the Solomon Islands were saying, let's improve the ambition, this isn't good enough. And then the Mexicans turned to Archie Young, who's the UK chief negotiator, and said, we'll give you a bottle of tequila if you finish by 6pm on Friday. <laughs> the Russians match it with a round of vodka shots. You know, we're not even getting close to countdown, and this is the level of debate. And is that how breakthroughs are achieved? Is it through the offer of tequila and vodka? Well, you would think so. 48 hours, even 72 hours later, they were still at it. And what's upset people is, especially the smaller countries, is they went through this whole process, you know, line by line, word by word, uh, negotiations, not just in the last two weeks, but actually over the last two years. And in the end, it was a deal stitched up between the world's four biggest economies and probably the world's four biggest emitters, actually, China, the US, India, and the European Union. And all these countries, after all that work, were just shut out. And it was done in a huddle, in a side room, in about 20 minutes. You know, the last time we spoke, you said Paris had been a success, Copenhagen, not so much. Where does Glasgow now sit amongst them? Well, someone said to me that this was actually more important in practical terms than Paris which was quite striking because after Paris, you know, there was celebration. This was the first time 
the world had actually agreed to tackle climate change. Every country in the world. There was euphoria following Paris. But there was no detail about how you would get there. Boris Johnson described it as this fuzzy feeling where they had done something, but they didn't quite know what they had done or how they would carry it out. Glasgow starts to fill in those gaps. There's some clarity now. It's not perfect, but there is clarity about how they get there. And we won't really know until this time next year how successful it's been, because it's really about what countries do over the next 12 months in terms of coming back with better pledges. If they ignore this, this idea that they're meant to come back you know, with improved pledges on cutting emissions, then Glasgow will have definitively failed. If they actually do what they're meant to do and come back with up to ambitions, then I think it will have been a very, very important step in the process. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Sunday Times science editor, Ben Spencer. You can read all of Ben's reporting on COP26 online at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be fine. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>